Walters is open for lunch Monday through Friday. Walters opens at noon for lunch, midday baseball watching, and even the occasional European soccer match. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters. Walters Beer Wall is top-notch. Check out all their options on tap, including many local brews. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now Corbin sets with two out to pitch, swung on, line drive, base hit, pass, bell down the right field line. For Michael Franco, scores Mancini, and it's now the Orioles three, and the Nationals nothing. The kick in the pitch, and Avila swings and lines it to right down the line, a fair ball into the corner. Harrison around third comes in to score, and the Nationals with four runs home at the bottom of the first now lead. For the first time, it's Washington four and Baltimore three. One ball, two strikes, two out, top of the ninth. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out. And a curly W is in the books. And so is a three-game sweep of the Orioles in the Battle of the Beltway Series. And welcome to Nat Chat for Monday, May 24th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, it wasn't necessarily easy, but the Nationals pulled off a three-game sweep of the Orioles at Nationals Park. The Nats, for just the second time this season, author a three-game sweep. Now are 20-23 and 23 on the year, a 6-5 win over the O's on Sunday afternoon, concluding a series in which the Nats tormented the Orioles' oh-so-bad pitching. Nats bats in the series score 22 runs, go 38 for 106 with 10 walks. Yes, the Orioles' pitching isn't good, but given the Nationals' offensive struggles, very nice to see what the Nats did over these last three games. And had to do it coming back from an early hole both the last two days. 5 nothing in the first inning on Saturday, 3 nothing in the first inning on Sunday, and they already retook the lead by the end of the first thanks to some uh, a nice rally against Matt Harvey. Now, you mentioned the record, 20 and 23. You know why this is significant? I do. Go ahead. Because this means that the Nationals cannot mathematically go 19 and 31 this year. So for the first time since 2018, they will not be 19 and 31. You can look at that as a good omen or a bad omen. I'm just glad we don't have to write about that this year because it's getting a little tired. <laughs> Yeah, I think 19 and 31 is a very special thing that should kind of be left for the 2019 season, even though I know they did get to 19 and 31 in 2020. But yeah, let's try to rally from a different record this year, or maybe not rally, maybe just go ahead and, you know, be good for an entire season for once. But yes, you're right. The Nats have clinched not having 19 <laughs> wins over the first 50 games. And they did it on the anniversary of the day two years ago when they got swept in New York to fall to 19 and 31. So, I mean, is there, that right? There, yes. Oh, there's some karmic something going on here. This was meant to be, absolutely. 
You know, it's also so funny, too, is the Nats at 20 and 23 still are last in the National League East, but are two and a half games behind the first place New York Mets. This division could not be more there for the taking. This division is begging for someone to rise up and grab this thing by the shirt collar. It's incredible. This was supposed to be the best division in baseball, and instead you're looking at four sub-500 teams in the division. Three of the five teams have negative run differentials. And that's the thing. For all of the complaining we've done about the Nats, and it's been justified, the Nats are so in this when it comes to winning the National League East. Last place more than a quarter of the way into the season, but just two and a half games out of first place. And now this is important because this is not expected. There are three teams in the National League West with the Giants joining the Dodgers and Padres that are playing really well. And, you know, long way to go. Let's see, especially as they're playing each other. But if you get both wildcard teams out of the West, there's only one spot for the NL East, and you're going to have to win the division. So this has been a saving grace for the Nationals. It's way too early to talk about wildcards and things like that. But the way it's playing out, they may not have the fallback of the wildcard this year. They may have to win the division. So there's a lot to get to with this game on Sunday. There was, yes, an incident involving Juan Soto. We'll get to the incident coming up momentarily. But yeah, the Nats authored a sweep here. So we can start with some positive vibes. Can we please do that? It's not been often we've been able to do that here on the Nats Chat Podcast. And I don't know about you, Mark, but it is starting to feel like the two newcomers who'd been such disappointments for the Nationals are on track. Now, Kyle Schwarber's been on track for a few weeks now. That is true. But he ends up having another very good series in this three-game sweep of the Orioles, including hitting a big-time two-run homer in the win on Sunday afternoon. And Josh Bell, here we are now with Josh Bell, and he ends up in the series going 5-for-10 with a double and four singles. Has himself another nice game in this game on Sunday, 2-for-4 with two singles and an RBI. And Josh Bell, rather quietly, has raised his OPS by 158 points over the last 10 games. I think we've been cautious and, and justifiably so with Bell of like, okay, he played well in this game or that game, but you know we're not going to declare victory just yet. He is getting better. The numbers bear that out. And maybe, just maybe, it's going to turn out all right with Schwarber and Bell. We're getting that point where you're starting to say, okay, I think this is legit what they're doing. Both of them. They've done it for uh, you know a good two weeks solid. Both of them. And, and Schwarber's been going a little better than that for a while. Let me give you some numbers here on Schwarber that I think are really telling. And it caught me by surprise. I was not necessarily expecting this to be the case at this point. He is now for the season hitting 234, on base is 331, slugging is 467. His career slash line prior to this season, 230, 336, 480. He is almost exactly in line with what he has been for his career. And I'm not sure that I thought that he had gotten to that point. And maybe it also tells you he's never been a high batting average guy and the on-base is solid in the 330s and you know slugging under 500. But at this point, at least, he is doing like Mike Rizzo would say and performing like the back of his baseball card. Now, can he continue it? Keep it going. Let's see. And Josh Bell, we knew he was a streaky hitter. I mean, th- we've seen the real extremes here already, just awful for a-, a month and now really good for the last several weeks. And What I like is you're seeing it. It's not just a home run here or there. He's hitting line drives. He's hitting singles. He's going the other way sometimes. He's hitting fastballs. He's hitting off-speed pitches. All of it is coming together, and to me, it's a really good sign. You ride this as long as you can now with him because he's probably going to go through a slump again. That's just the way he is. He's been a streaky hitter. So you ride it now and hope that he and Schwarber together can now combine with Trey Turner and Juan Soto and give you a truly imposing one through four, which they've been lacking all along. 
Yeah, I still want to see Josh Bell hit for more power. The uh, recent offensive rise has had a lot to do with a bunch of singles, which are nice, but you know, doubles and homers are better, and we know that Josh Bell is more than capable of hitting those, so you'd like to see some more of that. I think it's been noticeable with Bell. I, I know the Nats have preached this to a lot of different guys, but Bell's been very aggressive early in counts. It feels like a lot of first pitch hits, which is just fine. You know, If that's uh, the way you want to make a living, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I did not like the base running boo-boo by Josh Bell in this game on Sunday. So he has a first pitch leadoff single. There you go. First pitch hit, bottom of the third. And then he inexplicably gets thrown out at third for the second out on a ground ball to the Orioles shortstop, Freddie Galvis. What Bell was doing and trying to advance the third on a ground ball in front of him, I have no idea. And that's like a cardinal sin in baseball. You don't make an out at third on a ground ball hit in front of you. And then for good measure, Bell spiked the Orioles third baseman, Michael Franco. I mean, Josh Bell is not a small guy, so I can only imagine the pain that Franco was in. So that was kind of a rough moment. But yeah, it's been really nice to see Josh Bell do better. And with Schwarber, you know, he has been hitting for power, right? Even when he was struggling, right? The walk-off homers, things of that nature. Hits himself another homer in this game on Sunday afternoon. Kyle Schwarber now, his last 17 games, his OPS has shot up by 126 points. And like you just said, the numbers now are kind of more or less in line with who Kyle Schwarber is, a 798 OPS on the season. You know, it's funny. We've talked about how Davey Martinez doesn't have many options like beyond Bell and Schwarber. It's like, well, if not them, then who? And the answer is, well, nobody. That's one of the problems with the roster. But maybe in a weird way that ends up serving Bell and Schwarber well in that Davey's had no choice but to keep putting those guys out there and just let them figure it out. And it sure looks like they are in the process of figuring things out. Well, and what it allows them to do is not be constantly looking over their shoulder and thinking, oh, if I have another bad game, I'm going to get benched. And to take this in a totally different direction, I think you sometimes see that kind of thing with, say, a Carter Keboom, a younger player who is maybe feeling the pressure a little bit more and doesn't have that kind of rope to know that he's going to be able to play every day. These guys have the full support of their manager they have all along, and maybe that does help them get through the tough times and know that, hey, just focus on getting hits, getting my swing right. This isn't my job security I'm worried about now. So you know, you can say that's either great managing, or you can say it's a reflection of the fact that they don't have any backup options there. But it's nice to see, and, and I, I imagine that they both have felt very comfortable here because of that. Are you interested in buying or selling your home? Support for Nats Chat comes from Rachel Levy of Compass Real Estate. By focusing on the personal parts of the real estate process and using technology to simplify the rest, Rachel seamlessly guides her clients through their experience. Rachel uses her deep local knowledge and exceptional customer service to advocate for her clients all across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. To learn more, follow her on Instagram at Real Estate Rachel. Another guy who really stood out, and he stands out again on Sunday, is Josh Harrison, who ends up being the Nationals' number six batter at all three games, as we noted in the previous installment of the podcast, started in center field in game two of this series, is back to starting at second base on Sunday, two for four with a double and a single. Two out double in the Nationals, four run first, one out first pitch single, and the Nats one run fifth. And how about the defensive gem authored by Harrison? That leaping catch with his left arm outstretched above his head to rob Trey Mancini of a leadoff hit for the first out in the top of the fifth inning. It feels like whatever you put Harrison, whatever you ask him to do, he does it. He does it with a smile on his face. He does it with a little bit of swagger, and he does it well. And there he was again on Sunday getting the job done. Yeah, remember, he started in center field on Saturday for the first time in his major league career. <laughs> and now he comes back in the infield and has, shows the hops on a line drive. So yes, this is that's infectious when you have somebody who can bounce around like that, doesn't ever complain about it, willing to do whatever the team needs him to do. And 
He's going to be at second base almost all the time now, but with Victor Robles on the IL now, maybe we're going to talk about that. He's going to be out for the next week. You may have to see Harrison in center field another game or two along the way, and, and his versatility is going to be very valuable to them during this time. All right, and then one other guy, and then we'll get to Soto. Uh, Alex Avila, I want to give him credit. He's not known for his bat, but two doubles, a walk, and an RBI on Sunday afternoon, catching Patrick Corbin, which was interesting. You know, for a spot start, we haven't seen a lot of Alex Avila. You know, most teams, they kind of, I don't want to say do a 50-50 split a catcher, but it's like maybe a 60-40 split, 65-35. We have not seen much of Alex Avila this season, but uh, he had himself a really good game on Sunday. He did, and I thought it was significant that he was catching Corbin. Gomes has caught Corbin basically every time that they've been here together and when they've both been healthy since 2019. And it was tempting to try to start Gomes again, but Davey said, having played a bunch of days in a row, a long game yesterday, and a game that was against a lefty starter yesterday. So Gomes is going to start that one. Because they're facing a righty day, he felt like it was time to put Avila in there. Now, he and Corbin actually do know each other. They were together in Arizona a few years ago. So they have worked together. And Alex said that that made a big difference that he went into the game. He already knows what the guy throws. So there was no issue about trying to feel it out or, or get a sense of what he likes to do in certain situations. So it proved to be a good pairing and good on him. And they're going to need more. I mean, I've been really impressed with Gomes's workload and how he's held up through this. You got to believe some point along the way, he is going to need a few more days off. It's going to be a long, hot summer for a 30-something catcher to be, you know, starting six out of seven days a week. Yeah. And Gomes has cooled off a bit at the plate lately. So the Nationals have a very good series offensively. And then there's what happened with Juan Soto on Sunday. Soto did not really get in on the offensive act on Sunday. 0 for 5 is what Soto ended up being. It's not like he had a bad series. He goes 4 for 13 with a double, three singles, two walks in the series. But it does kind of continue this thing of since he came off the 10-day injured list, while he's hitting for average and getting on base, he's not hitting for power. His slugging percentage is coming off the IL is 419 as compared to his on base, which is 405. You love that on base, you don't love that slugging. Anyway, Soto goes 0 for 5 on Sunday, and has a big-time boo-boo for the final out and the Nationals' one-run fourth inning. Runner on third. Swinging a high, high pop-up straight up the chute. Severino right near home plate. This can be a fair ball, and it drops! Soto didn't run. They throw to first, and they get him out! Soto did not run. He should have been at first base. This fair pop-up drops, and the inning is over, and the Nationals don't score. But because Soto wasn't initially running, he ends up being thrown out at first base for one of the weirdest, I guess, technically ground outs that you'll ever end up seeing. Now, shortly after this happened, Masson's cameras caught the Nationals hitting coach, Kevin Long, seemingly giving Soto a pep talk on the dugout steps. Soto looked to be very down on himself. He kind of had this like blank stare on his face, just staring off straight ahead. And Long was to Soto's side, you know, kind of talking him up. It looked like patting him on the back, that kind of a thing. And then I know, Mark, in your interaction with Davey Martinez in his post-game Zoom press conference, Davey did not hold back about how he felt what went down with Soto. No, and this was a rare case where Davey Martinez was publicly admonishing one of his players, let alone his star player. I think this happens behind the scenes a little more than we realize, but it's very rare for Davey, maybe not even ever, to come out in public and say what he did. And that was this. I already talked to him about it, and I told him it's embarrassing for the whole club. He understands that. I made him apologize to the team, and I told him it doesn't happen again, and he understands that as well. I mean, that's pretty serious. That's pretty strict stuff, and not something you see every day, again, certainly with a star player. Now, watching it from above, it seemed like Soto immediately knew his mistake. He was upset by it, like you said, what you could see of him in the dugout. So I don't think he needed to be reminded of it. I don't think he needed 
to apologize to anyone for it. But I thought that was a pretty savvy move of Davey, number one, to actually have him do it and apologize to the team and to let the world know that he had done that and to say, you know what, Juan Soto is not bigger than anyone else in this team. Yes, he's a superstar player, one of the best players in baseball, but he still has to run out every pop-up just like everyone else does. And so you you can't help but think back to times when Bryce Harper, when maybe something like this would happen and how it was handled then. The inability to run 90 feet. I think Davey did a nice job of nipping this one in the bud right away. I don't think there's going to be an issue anymore. I think Juan Soto learned his lesson and he is the type who will not make that mistake again. But that was a first. I don't really ever remember seeing Davey publicly admonish a player like that. So I think it's 100% what you said. I think Davey sees it as an opportunity to, I don't want to say establish his authority, but you certainly can make a statement about you and the kind of clubhouse you want to preside over when you hold a guy like Soto, a superstar like Soto, publicly accountable like that. I mean, the thing about Juan is he does not have this reputation. You know, no one ever questions like his hustle or his work ethic or anything like that. He's not known to have a bad attitude or anything like that. If you wanted to say, hey, you know, people screw up over the course of 162, it's not the end of the world. I, I really wouldn't have that big of a deal with it. But I think it's instructive that Davey did make an issue of it just to kind of say, hey, you know, this is my team and you're going to play the game a certain way. I wonder if Davey, this to me is, is, is maybe a function of Davey now having some contractual stability. And like, he knows he's the guy, you know, this is his team. There's no more of this stuff of, you know, year to year. And, you know, some of these coaches aren't guys he wants here, et cetera. Like, no, Davey is the guy. And to me, him doing this on Sunday is sort of reflective of that. And I'm not mad at Davey for doing that. That's fine. Now, I don't think you need to beat up on Juan Soto. Like we said, he doesn't have a reputation for doing this. I also think too, with that play, because initially it looked like a pop foul. And I'm guessing Soto maybe thought it was going to go foul. And of course you can't do that. You have to run it out. But I'm guessing that's probably, that, that at least was a part of why Soto didn't run that thing out initially. Yeah, 100%. He hit the ball straight up in the air, and he, Severino started back on it in foul territory, and Juan kind of puts his head down like, oh, oh well, you know, he's going to catch it, and I'm going to be out. And then the ball came back, and Severino misplayed and all that. So I agree. It was a weird play. This was not a, you know, the routine pop-up to short, and the guy just decides to, like, jog a little bit down the line and then peel off before the catch is even made. No. It was a very unusual play that you may never see happen again, but it's a good reminder. Always run it out. You never know what might happen. And I do think it was handled well. And I think it probably resonates within the clubhouse. I think, especially the veteran players, I think they appreciate that kind of thing, that nobody's throwing Soto under the bus or anything like that. And I'm sure after it's over, his teammates are going up to him and patting him on the back and saying, hey, you're going to be fine. It's, everything's okay. Like, there's not a Juan Soto problem in the clubhouse. Nobody's concerned that he's uh, an issue on the team at all. If anything, I think it kind of underscores how close-knit of a group they are, that they do hold each other accountable and that nobody is better than anyone else and the superstars don't get better special treatment. I think it was handled effectively. You know, let's see again how everything goes moving forward. And, you know, not being in the clubhouse yet, uh, it's still hard for me to have a sense of how these things go. But from what I could tell, I think this one was handled pretty well. So we had what happened with Soto, and then we had what happened prior to the game with the other half of the Nationals dynamic duo from a few years ago in terms of highly touted prospects, Victor Robles. So it was an eventful pregame situation for the Nationals. They put Will Harris on the 10-day injured list. More on that coming up momentarily. It sounded like with Robles, well, we knew he wasn't going to play again on Sunday, but it sounded like, okay, they're going to give this thing another day, and then we'll see where he's at with this sprained right ankle. And then it felt like, and tell me if I'm wrong, like out of the blue... 
The Nats then put Robles on the 10-day injured list prior to the game, retroactive to May 20th with the sprained right ankle. Look, man, is this another instance of Nationals injury confusion slash, you know, injury mystery where we're told one thing, then they do another. You know, they think one thing, then they happen to think another. Or what exactly happened here before the game? Just following this from afar, it was kind of confusing. All right, let me take you behind the scenes a little bit as much as I can from the way that I experienced all this. So the way it's working right now, we don't arrive at the ballpark as early as we used to. We're doing most of our pregame interviews from home. And then you get in the car and you drive to the ballpark and you get here a little bit before game time. So Davies pregame for a one o'clock game was at 11 a.m. And at 11 o'clock, they didn't have a lineup out yet. And he was asked about both Robles and Harris, in fact. And in the case of Robles, he said that they wanted to get another look at it today, that it was, there was some slight improvement. He had been hitting off a tee and the feeling, well, you know what? They're off on Monday and then maybe he'll be good by Tuesday. And that's reason to, to wait it out. They've gone for four days now. You know, what, what's the harm in another one, especially because of the off date? And in Will Harris's case, he was asked about him and he sort of started talking about him almost in the past tense as though he already knew he was on the injured list even though they had not announced it yet. So I think that move had already been determined and they weren't announcing it until Kyle McGowan made it here from Rochester. So we do the pregame stuff. I get in my car and I'm driving to the ballpark and I'm sitting in traffic and all of a sudden the announcement comes out, they put Robles on the aisle. Well, the Harris announcement came early on in my drive. The Robles announcement came later at the end. And here's the bizarre thing. There was no corresponding move for Robles. They didn't replace him with anybody, okay? So what's going on here? Okay, here's, here's what's going on. They do not have any other outfielders on their 40-man roster. There's nobody at AAA who's already on the 40-man roster as an outfielder. So I think they felt like, let's try to hold on and maybe we can get by without this. It must have reached a point pregame as they did some tests on Robles that they figured, he's not going to be ready. This isn't worth it. And by making the move today, you can backdate it three days. So now he goes on the IL officially on Thursday, which means the 10 days will be up one week from today. That's the shortest amount of time possible. If they had waited any longer, they couldn't have backdated it that far. So I think all of that comes into play here. And they figured, you know what? We've been playing a man down anyways. Let's just wait to replace him. I think by Tuesday they will, but there just wasn't enough time to make the transactions and get somebody else here. I would imagine by Tuesday they will clear a spot on the 40-man roster and call someone else up. So did they misplay this? Because we've seen them do this before, where they don't put a guy on the DL slash IL, and then it ends up costing them because they play a man down for a while. And now in this case, you could say they played a man down in terms of the roster spot because they had no corresponding roster move to make on this day. Is it fair to say they misplayed this, or is that too harsh? Well, it didn't cost them at all. There wasn't a point at this weekend, I don't feel like, where the lack of Robles, but being a man down, that it, it made a difference, I suppose that might have played a slight role in letting Patrick Corbin hit for himself with the bases loaded in the fifth inning. But he still had three or four options on the bench. So I I don't think that was really what was behind that. So I think they got away with it. I'll say that. Here's what bugged me about the way they handled this situation. Because I remember from Wednesday night when he got hurt and Davies said that he was going for x-rays. And I was surprised that it was x-rays. And I said, do you feel like you might need an MRI, which is what you would do for a sprain or ligament damage or God knows whatever else. And he basically said, like, no, we, you know, we think he's okay for that. It's just an x-ray to check for a fracture. Well, he clearly wasn't, I mean, that was a bad injury. It looked bad. And in my mind, I'm thinking he's not playing for several days. And so the fact that they waited this long to then finally get the MRI to confirm the sprain that we all knew he had all along, 
I thought was odd. Uh, if they had waited any longer than they, then that is a, a botched job on their part because now they're losing days where they can get them back. I don't think it cost them that dearly. Like I said, it's not like there's somebody waiting at Rochester to take that spot that would have made a huge difference for them. So I think they got away with it, but I don't understand why they didn't just give an MRI right away, diagnose the sprain, and then say, okay, let's make the move then. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say this. It didn't cost them. To me, that doesn't mean that it couldn't have cost them. I remember they did this with Ryan Zimmerman, I, I want to say a few years ago with the foot, where like they refused to put him on the, I, the IL, the DL, whatever it was called at the time. And then eventually they do. And you're just like, why don't you just do this from the get-go here instead of you know waiting and waiting and waiting and you end up costing yourself as time goes on. Hey, Nat Chat listeners, Tim Shover's here to tell you about Sunday Scaries CBD gummies. If you've been listening to this podcast and you know for well over a month, I've been telling you every single day about this. And let me tell you, it has helped me with sleep so much. Due to this podcast schedule, my sleep hours are a little unusual to say the least, but Sunday Scaries has saved the day for me in 2021. If you want some yourself, go to the website, sundayscaries.com. They got plenty of options for you. Check out their products. They have gummies, oil, candy, bath bombs, so much more. Check it out. And Nat Chat Podcast has you covered as well for your first order. When you go to check out, type in the promo code NATSCHAT. Again, the promo code NATSCHAT to save 25% off your first order. So again, go to sundayscaries.com, check it out, look what you want. When you go to check out, type in the promo code NATSCHAT to save 25% off your first order, and it'll be on your way, and you'll sleep better than you have in years. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Corbin Sets kicks in the 3-0. Swing to ground ball, chopped left side and threw it a left field to base hit. Schwarber comes in to get it, rounding third is Galvis. He'll come in to score. Mancini will turn and stop at second. Four consecutive base hits for the Orioles. Patrick Corbin. This to me was by far the biggest negative on Sunday. And, you know, you could argue maybe in the series. Patrick Corbin is not well. And we're at a point in the season now where I think we need to stop talking about, you know, well, maybe he's uh, finding himself and maybe he's rounding into form. Like, no, he's having a bad season again. His ERA now is 613 over nine starts. His whip is 155. He's facing a tanking Orioles team on Sunday. A tanking Orioles team on Sunday, by the way. That did not start its best player in Cedric Mullins. So this was a JV lineup that was even more JV than normal. And Corbin still had problems. Four runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up 11 hits, two doubles and nine singles, issued two walks. 
had just three strikeouts. I know some of the hits were kind of those, you know, Babbitt, very into the batted ball kind of hits, but they weren't all like that. And he gave up 11 hits. So, you know, you, you can only write off, off so much of that to, you know, very into the batted ball type stuff. Corbin didn't have a single clean inning in the game. He gives up three runs in the top of the first. This is almost like a near repeat of, of exactly what went down on Saturday. And he just, I don't know, to me, he never looked well. And he hasn't looked well for so much of this season. And it's frustrating because it was just a couple of starts ago, the 5-1 win over the Phillies at Nats Park on May 13th, in which Corbin looked so good. One run in seven innings, nine strikeouts. You feel like, okay, he's arrived. But since then, 6-3 loss at the Cubs last Tuesday night, three runs in five innings. And now this performance on Sunday, again, against a bad team in the Orioles that wasn't even starting its best player in Cedric Mullins. Uh, I'm down on Corbin. And you know, I, I, we can search for little positives here and there, but this is a second consecutive bad season to me that he's in the midst of. Well, here is the thing. And you mentioned it, the start, two starts ago against the Phillies, he was great. I mean, like legitimately great. Nine strikeouts, no walks, one run allowed in seven innings. And so that's, it's those glimmers that make you think, okay, maybe there is still something in there because it's not literally happening every time he takes the mound. Now it's happened more often than not. And it's especially troubling has now happened two in a row after the just awful start to the season that he had. Here's what stands out to me about what's going on with him. He just does not miss bats enough. And he's a guy who, when he was at his best in 2019, he's a strikeout pitcher. When he is locating his fastball and then using his slider to put away hitters, he's not a ground ball guy. He's not getting outs with weak contact. He's getting outs by getting swings and misses or even getting called third strikes. And he was just not doing that in this game. And so that to me is the larger concern here. And it's not a question of velocity. He was throwing the ball hard. It's, I think, a question of location. And of just like we said all along, he's, he's a two-pitch guy. And it's sort of like he has to have them both working to be really effective. And when they are working, he's a really, really effective pitcher. But when one of the two isn't working, it can get bad. And when both of them aren't working, it's a disaster, as we've seen a few times this year. So that to me is the troubling part of it, is that we're realizing just how in sync everything has to be for him to be successful. There's no other way for him to go about it. And when he doesn't have it, he doesn't have it. And that's a problem in the long term. The other thing with Corbin's outing was him batting in that bottom of the fifth inning. And uh, this is one of those decisions. I, I get where Davey was coming from and that the bullpen has been taxed. But this looks really bad, especially in hindsight now. Davey allows Corbin to bat with the bases loaded, two outs, and the Nats leading 6-5 in the bottom of the fifth. Corbin flies out to end the inning, and then Corbin ends up being pulled from the game after facing three batters in the top of the sixth inning. Like I said, I understand where Davey was coming from with his bullpen, but Corbin had not looked good. I mean, realistically, what was Corbin going to give you? One more inning, maybe? Okay, and the way he had pitched, I mean, how could you have been certain of that? That was a bad job by Davey. He 100% should have pinch hit for Corbin. So here, I think, is the most interesting thing about this game. It was the Dilemma that the manager faced on multiple occasions, which is, am I going for broke to try to win this game? Or am I saying I need to hold back for the betterment of the long haul here, not to burn guys up? And when he did not pinch hit for Corbin, my thought was, okay, he's actually saying we've got a bunch of relievers who are not available today. And that would have been perfectly understandable because you had four guys, Daniel Hudson, Brad Hand, Kyle Finnegan. The three of them had all pitched two days in a row and three of the last four. And then Austin Voth had pitched two of the last three and threw 41 pitches the day before. So in my mind, when he doesn't hit 
for Corbin, he's saying those four guys are unavailable today. And the only guys I have left in the bullpen are Wander Suero, Sam Clay, Kyle McGowan, and Paolo Espino. So he's sort of sacrificing a go-for-it moment in order to protect his relievers who he needs to give the day off. And he's just going to try to cobble it through the rest of this game. And if they win, great. And if they don't, oh, well, you're better off for the long haul. So that's what I thought. But then he ends up using Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand for the third day in a row, fourth out of five. They both were great. They got the job done fantastically. But in using those two, he's now saying, well, no, actually, I was going to go for it and try to win this game. And so the two do not work alongside each other. You either go all in on trying to win the game and do everything you can, or you say, we're kind of sacrificing today's game. We're not going all in on this one because we need to save the guys for the long haul. I thought those two moves did not go in concert with each other. No, they didn't. And, you know, especially considering you do have an off day on Monday. I mean, again, I get, you know, it's a 162 game season. You don't want to overwork your bullpen guys, but you're off on Monday. And then to your point, you end up using the guys anyway. In the moment, it was bad. But now looking back upon it, it's even worse that Davey did not pinch hit for Corbin. And the bases were loaded. Like, it's one thing if you have a runner on first and two outs, then, you know, maybe possibly you can justify this. I mean, I don't think you can, but maybe you can make a better argument. But the bases are loaded in what has been, or at least felt like at that point, you know, a real slugfest of a series. You know, the Orioles are scoring runs left and right against your pitching staff. You want as many tack on runs as you can get. And the Nats obviously did not get that there in that inning with Davey not pinch hitting for Patrick Corbin. So that does bring us to the Nationals bullpen. And, you know, the bullpen again gives up a run in the game. Natural relievers in the series combined to allow six runs in 12 innings. This to me is not getting enough attention. The bullpen's coming back down to earth. Although Daniel Hudson remains in another universe with the way he's performing. He ends up pitching in all three games in the series, is lights out in all three games in the series. On Sunday, pitching for a third straight day and a fourth time in five days gives a perfect top of the eighth that begins with strikeouts of Cedric Mullins, who is pinch hitting, and Ryan Mountcastle. So another excellent job by Hudson. Then Brad Hand comes on in the ninth inning, and he does get the job done. A scoreless top of the ninth for a second consecutive game. Now, it wasn't perfect like it was on Saturday. Uh, he did have kind of an interesting strategic decision in intentionally walking Trey Mancini. So you intentionally walked uh, potentially the tying run there. But Hand does get the job done in that spot. And, you know, Davey, of course, didn't want to use either guy, shouldn't have had to use either guy, but they do end up delivering. So I'm not as down on Suero as you are for this one because he got him four outs. And on a day where there still were, I mean, Finnegan and Voth were not available. Davey did say that afterwards. So he tried to get Corbin through the sixth. He didn't. He goes to Suero, gets out of that inning, gives him another inning, and, you know, it was a double, a wild pitch, and a ground out. I'm not going to kill him for that. I, in the bigger picture, to get four outs, to me, was important there. Daniel Hudson, like you said, is otherworldly right now. Pitching for the third straight day, the fourth out of five days, he blew a 99-mile-an-hour fastball on the black past Ryan Mountcastle for one of the two strikeouts. I don't think we are appreciating enough what Daniel Hudson is doing right now. At age 34, having had two Tommy John surgeries, he is electric right now, and you just hope that his arm and his body hold up through this because this is a pretty heavy workload, and that's why I said I would not have been upset if they had given him and Brad Hand the day off. Now, Davey talks to those guys before the game. He asked them, how are you feeling? They both insisted they were good to go. He's going to trust what his veterans say. They've been there and done that before. That was an important part of the decision-making process for the whole game. So Hudson was great. And Hand, I think it's a good another positive step for him. And yeah, the leadoff single, I think it was opposite field single. Sack bunt, which I thought was a mistake on the Orioles' part. With nobody out and a runner on first, just give away and out, move the runner up. And then what it ultimately allowed them to do is intentionally walk Mancini to face Santander instead. 
it was reminiscent of game two in Los Angeles in 2019 when he intentionally walked Max Muncy to put the winning run on base. And then Hudson struck out, uh, was that Seeger, I think, on a, an epic at bat, like 13 pitches. He finally threw him a slider to get him out. Well, in this case, he went right after hand, went right after Santander. And I thought it was interesting. Jim Hickey went out for a mound conference right before that. And it was to go over the game plan for Santander, which was fastballs up. Now, they've been telling hand in general, try to get it down. He's been getting beaten on fastballs up in the zone, but they knew that was the hole in Santander's swing. So hand went right after him up, up, up fastballs, 94 struck him out to win the game. So I think that was an important game for Brad hand to pitch three in a row, to look sharp, to be able to show he can get swings and misses up in the zone like that. I think that was a pretty big confidence booster for him. Yeah, I said Mancini was the tying run. He was the go-ahead run. So there's interesting strategy there by the Nationals, but it played out. Santander's actually one of the Orioles' better hitters. He just came off the 10-day injured list. So that's not a small accomplishment that Brad Hand struck out Santander to end the game like that. It's weird with Brad Hand right now because when he's looked bad, he's looked really bad, but he has racked up a bunch of strikeouts. And when he's been on, because like interspersed between these bad outings recently have actually been some pretty good outings. So you're not really sure what to feel about how to feel with Brad Hand. It's like this Jekyll and Hyde stretch that he's in the midst of, of when he's off, he's really off. But when he's on, he he looks like Brad Hand. He looks like the Nationals, if not best reliever, then second best reliever. Yeah, and I think that's why there is still reason to be encouraged by it, because this isn't a complete, you know, meltdown situation. This isn't a Trevor Rosenthal situation or anything like that. And and he was so good for the first month of the year. So I think he there's something was going on for that little stretch there. Maybe the mechanics were off. They talked about shortening his uh, leg kick a little bit, help him get on top of the ball a little bit better. I think whatever this is, it's a small thing that they're figuring out. And, you know, good for him. The way things had been going and the way things went Friday in the opener when it got a little dicey, he came back the next two days and got the saves. And, you know, they're going to need him for the long haul, obviously. And if this all works out in the end, Hudson and Hand could prove to be a pretty dynamic 8-9 combo for them. Yeah, and they're going to need him, especially with this Will Harris situation. I mean, I think it's easy to forget when the Nationals signed Will Harris a couple of off seasons ago, the idea was for Will Harris to be a part of, you know, the varsity bullpen, the A bullpen. Will Harris had been a very consistent reliever for the Astros for years, and it just has not played out well uh, over these uh, first few seasons here with the Nationals, especially so far this year. He wasn't bad last year. He was kind of middle of the pack. But here we are now with Will Harris. So he has another bad outing in the 12-9 Nationals win over the Orioles on Saturday. That outing left Will Harris as having allowed six runs in six innings over eight games this season. And sure enough, the Nats on Sunday put Harris back on the 10-day injured list with right hand inflammation for the second time this season. And, you know, we dealt with this thing with Harris right back in March where he felt numbness in his fingers while throwing in a B game. Initially, we're told that Harris has been diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. Then it comes out that he does not have a blood clot in the right arm, you know, does not have to have the more serious thoracic outlet syndrome surgery. You say, okay, well, that's good news. But he's never looked right, you know, seemingly has never felt right. And here he is now back on the 10-day IL with this right hand inflammation, which is kind of a weird thing, right? You don't hear about that often. Hasn't looked well. And I don't know, it doesn't feel like there's any real sense of when he might be back. And if he does come back, what he'll look like when he's back. Yeah, I don't think they're going to put him back out there until they finally figured out what this is that's causing his hand to swell up. And it did swell up after the game on Saturday. He has said some days it's fine, some days it's not. It's weird. You look at his game-by-game results. It's been literally every other one. He'll be perfect. He won't put a runner on base one time, and the next time up, he gives up a run. So there's something going on there that's not allowing him to sustain anything here. But 
They're sending him to another specialist. They're all mystified by what's going on, but I think they finally realized we can't put him out there just for his own sake. It's not even just about the team, but for his own sake, because you hope that there isn't anything seriously wrong with him that could you know, cause a major medical issue. So they want to get this figured out. And my guess is, unfortunately, we may not see him for a while because they're not going to want to let him pitch again until they have some sense of what's going on with his hand. Hey, everyone, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. So we've all had that dream, right? Tie game, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than one shot to swing for the fences because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. That's right, new users Get up to $1,000 back in site credit if your first bet doesn't win, and it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back in site credit each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. As for baseball games on Monday, Orioles at the Minnesota Twins Monday night at 740, a battle of 17 and 29 teams, yes, but the Orioles are starting their ace, John Means, certainly look like the play for that game. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code CHAT. 21 plus and present Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 109 with it, Indiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 100-GAMBLER, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. So, the Nationals have an off day on Monday. First one in a while. Then comes the continuation of the nine-game homestand. Three-game series against the Cincinnati Reds. Tuesday night through Thursday night. Then a three-game series against the Milwaukee Brewers. Friday night through Sunday afternoon. This is a homestand against a bunch of sub-500 teams. So this is the kind of homestand on which you can get fat and happy. The Nats have done a good job so far, right? Going 3-0, and beginning things with the three-game sweep. I didn't see the Nats announce the probables, but I would think, what, Scherzer, Ross, Strasburg for this three-game series against the Reds? Scherzer versus Tyler, is it Maley? Molly on uh, Tuesday, Joe Ross versus Jeff Hoffman on Wednesday, and Steven Strasburg versus Sonny Gray. It's a good matchup on Thursday. Okay, so that, I mean, you're starting in theory two of your best three starting pitchers, certainly your best one in Max Scherzer, and Strasburg looked pretty good in his, his first game off the IL. You know, we'll see how he looks on Thursday night, but this could end up being the kind of homestand that I don't want to say like turns around the national season because that's a little dramatic, but really gets them into a better place from a one loss record standpoint. You know, Eddie Jordan, when he was a Wizards coach, had a great phrase years ago, you got to harvest your nuts. This is the kind of homestand on which you need to harvest your nuts. Facing a bunch of bad teams, you got fans back in the ballpark with good atmospheres at Nats Park over the weekend. Would love to see the Nats go six and three, maybe even like seven and two over these nine games. Really put them in a favorable spot. Heading into a road trip that's going to include uh, two big series to begin things, a four-game set at the Braves, a three-game series at the Phillies. You know, I was thinking about this earlier, and we talked about, you know, the 19 and 31 start a couple years ago. Well, they got going, and they did it really by beating up on some bad teams. A lot of wins over the Marlins. Remember, they beat the Tigers up. I think they played the Royals that season. And well into the summer, there was still a little bit of a narrative about them. Like, yeah, they're winning games, but they're not beating anybody good. 
And then it really wasn't until August when they went into Chicago and swept the Cubs in a pretty momentous series that you first thought to yourself, okay, they actually have something going here. They can beat anybody. And so I almost wonder if you could kind of look at this the same way right now. Yeah, they're maybe beating up on some rebuilding teams and bad teams, but that's okay. Like you got to start somewhere. Start with that, feast on these opponents, and then as things start to get better and things come together, you can maybe start taking on some better teams and winning games. So, uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out. The Reds are better than the Orioles. I don't think it's a gimme, but I think it's, you know, a series that certainly you go in and say, you win two out of three. And one other note about it is, of course, that Sean Doolittle will be making his return to Nationals Park. He's now with the Reds. He's doing all right for them in kind of a sort of setup role, occasional closing role for them. He talked to reporters before Sunday's game. He's really excited to come back and is looking forward to seeing everyone probably going to get a really nice ovation from the crowd whenever he comes into a game on Tuesday or Wednesday. Your son Brian's team is better than the Orioles. So yeah, the, oh. the Reds the Reds are better than the Orioles. But you know, what I think what's good too about the Nats right now is, and, and look, there, there's still a lot with the team that is concerning. I mean, we just talked about Patrick Corbin. I, I think that's a real issue. But to see Schwarber getting going, to see Josh Bell doing well, to see Daniel Hudson having the season he's having, hopefully Brad Hand has been stabilized. Strasburg just came back. You know, you got to get Juan Soto hitting for some more power. But there are things to sort of latch onto right now with the Nats that make you say, all right, it's been a weird first quarter of the season. There's no guarantee things get appreciably better. But if you believe that things are going to get significantly better, you're not nuts to think that way. There are some good positive vibes here lately with the Nats. Yeah, this isn't a lost cause. No. And they have some good things. They just kind of have to put it all together now. They're flawed. They're not going to be a perfect team. It's not suddenly going to turn into a juggernaut or anything like that. But they have the pieces that if they just get all the parts working together at the same time, they can be a a decent team and then maybe put themselves in a position to try to acquire some reinforcements later this summer that actually help them address those needs they have. All right. Don't forget, Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts are available for you. Available to be worn as the weather is heating up here. Hit us up on the website and you can get yours in a variety of sizes. NatsChatPodcast.square.site. NatsChatPodcast.square.site. Also, we continue to welcome your voice memos. Uh, You can email us your takes on the Nationals, your questions about the Nationals. Just use your smartphone, record yourself asking a question, making a comment, and then email that to us natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can also email us uh, directly, you know, questions, comments about the team, about the podcast. Uh, You can email us too if you'd like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast. Again, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, uh, we're all over Twitter. The official Twitter account of the pod is at Nats underscore chat. Mark is on Twitter at Mark Zuckerman. I'm on Twitter at Al Galdi. All Nationals radio highlights on the Nats Chat Podcast are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. For Mark, I'm Al. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. When you're a part of a, of a team that won a World Series, I think it, it becomes a lot different. So, But I'm, I'm looking forward to, to being back in D.C., to being back in Nats Park and seeing some of the guys on the team and, and the support staff with the Nats. And, you know, I, I had some really special relationships there. I, I'm so grateful for my time there. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.